That is Vesamachta Bechagacha, the celebration song of the holiday, having gone through being in Sukkot and with Simcha Torah coming this weekend. Um, the the great virtue of um, the great virtue of Sukkot is Shalom. So, wishing everyone a week of of peace on the deepest deepest levels. And today I'm excited to learn with you about Henry David Thoreau from the 19th century right here in America. So let's start with a poll question on Thoreau. When we have a strong political view, we should A, remain quiet and go volunteer to help others. Option B, talk it out with someone who disagrees. Option three, get arrested in the streets and civil disobedience. (laughs) So when we have a strong political view, we should A, remain quiet and go volunteer to help others. We should B, talk it out with someone who disagrees. We should three, go get arrested in the streets and civil disobedience. As always, that doesn't uh, include all the options. <laughs> um, but let's see, give one more second, Gets give folks some, a moment here. Okay, 63% say remain quiet and go volunteer to help others. Why create all this commotion when we could just go do some good? 38% say talk it out with someone who disagrees, right? Uh, build a bridge. And no one here is saying, <laughs> which is obvious. I mean, every time we have a strong political view, I don't think anyone's going to go get arrested in civil disobedience. But that is a good segue into Thoreau, um, as we'll see with what happens with um, these types of commitments. So friends, is it better, is life better lived in solitude of the woods or by making change in the streets? How does one come to connect with eternal truths? How should a person respond to an unjust government? This week, our journey finally takes us to America. We made it. We're in America, the great Golden Medina, where we meet Henry David Thoreau. He doesn't look super happy there, Um, but people didn't smile in the olden days. Maybe if you have a picture of your grandparents, they look like that. Um, our, Our new thing of like selfies every three seconds, like, look, I'm the happiest person in the world. Look at my selfie. That's like a very new phenomenon. Um. He was a 19th century transcendentalist from Massachusetts. Transcendentalism was a modern philosophical movement inspired by the American writer Ralph Waldo Emerson. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, here's how we'll understand that movement. The transcendentalists operated with the sense that a new era was at hand. They were critics of their contemporary society for its unthinking conformity and urged that each person find, in Emerson's words, an original relation to the universe. Emerson and Thoreau sought this relation in solitude amidst nature and in their writing. By the 1840s, they, along with other transcendentalists, were engaged in the social experiments of Brook Farm, Fruitlands, and Walden, Walden most important here, And and by the 1850s in an increasingly urgent critique of American slavery. Thoreau's most famous book was Walden, or Life in the Woods, a memoir reflecting on what it means to live simply in nature. 
based on his experience living by the aforementioned Walden Pond. The poet Robert Frost would later say, in one book, he surpasses everything we have had in America. <laughs> in this work, Thoreau describes his life as the way out of the groupthink of society. He writes, I find it wholesome to be alone the greater part of the time. To be in company, even with the best, is so wearisome and dissipating. I love to be alone. I never found the companion that was so com companionable as solitude. So for, th for some of us, this might not resonate at all. We hate being alone. We feel isolated. We always want to talk to someone or feel connected. For others, this might resonate deeply, um, this sense of this value of, of solitude in the deepest sense. While we tend to think of Thoreau as advocating for an isolated life in the woods, he is also notable for his essay, Civil Disobedience, about the obligation to disobey an unjust government. In this case, he was a staunch opponent of slavery, slavery and of the Spanish-American War. We see from the diversity of his interests that Thoreau both receded from society and also sought to change it. And beyond writing and speaking, Thoreau backed up his thoughts with his actions. In one case, he refused to pay for six years of owed poll taxes in protest of government policies. So he was jailed for a night until somebody paid the taxes behind his back. Further, he was a conductor of the Underground Railroad, the effort to help Black people escape slavery and flee to places where they would be free and safe. Thoreau was an early proponent of conscientious objection and nonviolent resistance, ideas that would be embraced by Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. in the generations that followed him. They were very much students of his. Mahatma Gandhi was deeply inspired by civil disobedience and in his activism took Thoreau's ideas in a more strictly pacifist direction. In his autobiography, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, whether expressed in a sit-in at lunch counters a freedom ride into Mississippi, a peaceful protest in Albany, Georgia, a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. These are outgrowths of Thoreau's insistence that evil must be resisted and that no moral man can patiently adjust to injustice. So it's like MLK is learning from Gandhi and Gandhi's learning from Thoreau. And we'll tap in a little bit into Thoreau's earlier insights and MLK directly from Thoreau as well. Um, you know, we often think of people as inventors of ideas, but rarely is that the case. People might have innovations or twists, but generally people are, you know, as has been said, midgets on the shoulders of giants. Um, everyone is kind of learning from previous generations. That's part of what we're learning in this series as well, that even though we kind of attribute someone as kind of being the founder of some of, you know, a movement uh, or having this radical innovation, but really they're a part of a continuity of ideas. The Jewish philosophy, in fact, and just a reminder, the Talmud says you bring the Mashiach, you bring the Messiah by quoting ideas in people's names. Rather than have the arrogance of say, oh, these are all my ideas, we always quote ideas in the names of who we who we learn it from. That builds kind of a trust and, and it cultivates a humility that we're merely sharing things from other folks. The Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, who we'll talk about later, and man's duty as man accepted as man accepted Thoreau's idea that when a law is unjust, a person is obligated to break it. These notions don't seem so radical today, um, you know, post 1960s. But in Thoreau's time, they were unheard of. 
This is a testament to Thoreau's bravery and the philosophy of self-reliance that transcendentalists espoused. While many philosophical schools remain primarily in the realm of theory, transcendentalism was one that directly enabled moral courage. Today's civil disobedience is almost cute. I mean, if you're not doing dangerous, violent stuff like blowing up, you know, blowing up stuff or, you know, or, you know, breaking glass windows, you're just like sitting in a street and it's organized. It's I I, I hate to call it cute because it's, it you know, there's still bravery involved. But by and large, you know, you're not going to get, you know, um, you know, it's not going to like ruin your life. You, you get you get a lawyer, you, you work through the process, this and that. Um but in earlier eras, um, you might get beaten. You know, you might this. You might get a felony. This might ruin your career, your reputation. So civil disobedience is is very different. Or in in different countries, most certainly, you look at a woman in Iran, a woman in Iran who's protesting the ayatollahs. I mean, you might spend your life in prison. You know, uh, or in Russia, you're standing up against the Russian government. Or in China, I mean, literally, you take a stand in 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 a in a, a, a amidst a tyranny. Uh, amidst, you know, your communist regime, you you know, you might, you ruin your life. It's very different. Civil disobedience here in 21st century America. Thoreau's principles of protest are something that should be, should deeply inspire us as Jews. We can consider how the Jewish tradition at its best has embraced Thoreau's ideas of conscientious objection. For instance, in the 1960s, the Boston Beitin, a Beitin is a Jewish court, a court. The Boston Beitin wrote a tshuva saying that refusal to serve in the Vietnam War was Jewishly permissible, right? You might think, oh, this is illegal to, you know, dodge the draft. But uh, this Beitin said, this Jewish court in Boston, that it's permissible to do so. One could avoid the mandate of government based upon the personal conscience. By the way, has anyone seen this amazing movie, this movie of... This religious person, I forgot what kind of Christian he was, um, in World War II, where he was against killing, but he was also against dodging, you know, not entering. And so he he adamantly wanted to serve the country, so he became a soldier, but he refused to carry a weapon. And so he saved countless lives. It's this really emotional movie. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Um, it's called something like Conscient... No, not Dunkirk. But it, it's, um, it's this real... It, he's a conscientious objector. And um, in, in in the beginning, all of his fellow soldiers dishonor him. He's some weakling. He doesn't understand the realities of war. He's not honoring the country. But in the end, when all of them are afraid, he's running into the war zone and carrying people out. And he's running into the most dangerous spots. And it's a true story. Um, you know, keep climbing up to spots and all these people who dishonored him, he ultimately saves their lives. And they come to honor him. And it's like really emotional. I almost want to tear up thinking about it, about how he's carrying them down. And he keeps saying in the end of the movie, just one more. They say, you can't go back up. It's not safe to go back up. He says, just one more. I got to save one more. Hacksaw Ridge? Are you talking about Hacksaw Ridge with Andrew Garfield in it? Oh, there it is. I think that might that might be it. I'm not actually, I'm not sure. I'm not no. sure. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. No. Um, it, it's something like conscientious objector or something. Um, I'll, I'll try to find it. But this famous line in the end is just one more. I got to save one more. And he keeps going back up, even though he's exhausted, he's injured. And he keeps going and just just one more. And he keeps, um, you know, you know, until the end, you know, bringing down everyone he can. In any case, uh, in any case, um, heroes come in all shapes and sizes. Um, 
Thoreau, by speaking out against the injustices of his time and developing the social change tool of nonviolent resistance, set into motion a historically impactful way of being in the world and a tradition of resistance we should seek to continue today, in addition to other means of action such as persuasion and political advocacy. However, there are some Jewish nuances to the notion of civil disobedience. For example, in Judaism, we have the principle that one must follow the law of the land unless it's requiring you to violate the Torah. Right? Dina demalchuta dina means you can't cheat your taxes. I don't care if there's a Torah law or rabbinic law to pay taxes. It's the law of the land and it's a chilo Hashem. Right? Judaism would generally tell someone like Thoreau to pay his taxes. Like You can't just be like, I disagree with the government's policies. I don't pay my taxes. It could be a chilo Hashem, a desecration of the name of God, and put Jews at risk to engage in tax evasion. Right. As I see today that Sam Bankman Freed is back in the news. Right. And, you know, the anti-Semitic tropes that um, Jews are corrupt in business and controlled finances, whatever the case is. When you got a guy like Bankman Freed, who's noticeably Jewish, who's now for crypto, you know, or 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 uh, or uh, made off whoever else. Like, number one, it's ethical. Number two, like Jews get killed when 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 Jews act unethical in business. However, if the government were to mandate the eating of pork, one would put Jewish law first, right? So if it doesn't contradict Judaism, then you have to follow the law of the land. If it does contradict, then we can go against it. So even though Judaism is in favor of civil disobedience toward a moral means, Judaism is not categorically opposed to violent resistance, self-defense, or morally necessary intervention. For example, when Moshe, when Moses saw a taskmaster beating an Israelite slave, Moshe killed him in an action that was not condemned in any way by the Torah. Right? Violence is not condemned um, in a moment of civil disobedience. So too, the first Jew, Avraham, in the book of Genesis, enlists others to save his nephew Lot, who was being taken captive by invading kings from Babylonia. Judaism is not fundamentally pacifist. Right? Even though we, we want to reduce violence, we want to reduce war and conflict, violence has its place in a messy world. Um, we're, we're not a po we're, we don't say defund the police. We don't say disarm the, 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 you know, the army. Um, we understand that there's a place for, we don't say someone doesn't have the right to a weapon in their home um, to protect themselves. Um, that traditionally we understand it's a violent world and people have a right to protect themselves individually and collectively. Because Thoreau died of tuberculosis related um, to, you know, related bronchitis in 1962, so, excuse me, a, tuber a tuberculosis related bronchitis in 1962, at age 44, we don't know what, what he thought definitively of the Civil War, which achieved his goal of emancipation of slaves through deadly means. Jews must additionally consider the example Thoreau set by being so strongly and impactfully anti-slavery. It's one thing to hold the Torah value of liberation, and it's another to do the work of liberation in the world. As the rabbis themselves say, it's not learning, which is the essence, but rather action. Thoreau never married and didn't have any children. When he was 23 years old, he proposed to a woman, but she rejected him. He was influenced by Indian spiritual thought via Hindu texts and practices such as flute playing and yoga, which moved him towards pantheism, 
a concept we've discussed earlier in this series. Through this belief, Thoreau had a desire to connect to nature, which he found also required being free from distractions. This was also kind of an anomaly for a white American to be engaging with Hindu texts, to be engaged in flute playing and yoga. Yoga kind of made it into mainstream American exercise. Um, you know, some people treat it as a spiritual practice, but most treat it as kind of a a health a healthful practice. Um, but certainly way ahead of his time in that regard as well. Thoreau wrote in his book, Walking, in short, all good things are wild and free. This unwavering commitment to freedom made Thoreau something of an anarchist. He believed laws were often more likely to oppress humans than to protect them. In the time of slavery and the Fugitive Slave Act, though, that position seemed entirely reasonable. For Thoreau, actualization of the self meant being free from what in Judaism we might call the idol of materialism. He writes in Walden, most of the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are not only not indispensable, but positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. And he also writes, and better than love, than money, than fame, give me truth. He is ultimately, uh, above all, committed to this, to truth. As Jews, we should think deeply about how the ways Thoreau believed freedom was achieved. We can embrace his view that the luxuries around us are at best distractions from what the human can achieve. It is undeniable that materialism is among the most problematic forces in our lives today. Thoreau shares an essential idea that Judaism, in his understanding, that while monetary gains are temporarily temporary, we can find the eternal in experiences. Thoreau writes in Walden, if you have built castles in the air, this is a famous one, if you've built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. This bears a striking similarity to what Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel writes in the opening chapter of the Sabbath. By the way, I would put the Sabbath in one of the top 10 Jewish books to read if you haven't read it. It's pretty short, the Sabbath. Here's what Heschel writes over there. The seventh day is a palace in time, which we build. It is made of soul, of, soul, of joy and reticence. In, it, in its atmosphere, a discipline is a reminder of adjacency to eternity. Indeed, the splendor of the day is expressed in terms of abs, abstentions. How else express glory in the presence of eternity, if not by the silence of abstaining from noisy acts? These restrictions utter songs to those who know how to stay at a palace with a queen. So just like Thoreau said we should build castles in the air, but build a foundation below it, so too Heschel argued for Shabbat as a palace in time, an abstract palace, which then we build a foundation below it. In Judaism, with Shabbat, we have our own Walden Pond, albeit a less lonesome one, that we can return to for one day a week rather than as Thoreau did for two years straight, right? So, so Thoreau wants extended isolation. We say, okay, build isolation into your week, right? Shabbat is a spiritual practice of removing ourselves from the rat race. Judaism knows, just as Thoreau did, that there is a place both for life in the woods and also for radical societal engagement, for civil disobedience, one practical takeaway for all of us th from Thoreau might be a reminder of the value of taking daily walks. 
now um uh this is something i've been looking into which i i um i just love this this uh these ideas that are going to come from some philosophers right now the value of walks as a philosophical practice we may not be walking through the forest all day like he was but we can in our own ways take walks we know the significant physical and mental health value but also it can be soul deepening thoreau wrote I took a walk in the woods and I came out taller than the trees. We can gain new perspectives. We He wasn't the first philosopher, of course, to promote walking. We know the Greeks often philosophized as they walk together. Kierkegaard, who we just learned about, wrote, I know of no thought so burdensome that one cannot walk away from it. Right, The best thing to do when you are, have anxiety or stress is go take a walk. For those who were deep thinkers, they needed to escape the book and the pen and paper to regain clarity. Charles Dickens wrote, if I could not walk far and fast, I think I should just explode and perish. Nietzsche wrote, all truly great thoughts are conceived while walking. He also wrote, do not believe any idea that was not born in the open air and of free movement. <laughs> So too, the rabbis found great value in deep conversations while walking. Here's what Rabbi Menachem Froman wrote. By the way, if you don't know Froman, you got to know this guy. Um, Froman was a radical spiritualist. He was a chassid, a neo-chassidic thinker. But more than that, he died maybe a decade ago. He was a radical peace activist in Israel. But he disagreed that, that peace would be achieved with Israelis and Palestinians through secular means. He said all these secular attempts at peace fail. You've got these secular politicians in Israel, these secular politicians among, among Palestinians, and they will never get the religious elements of their society on board. Peace will come from the most radical religion, um, uh, religious um, believers in society, and the secular will follow. And so he himself was extremely religious, and he would meet with Hamas. He would meet with, he would meet with some of the most dangerous religious fundamentalists on the Palestinian side. Here's what Menachem Froman wrote over here. The temple also sat on the boundary, on the line between Yehuda and Binyamin, right? Those are two tribes as the Israel is broken up in uh, biblically in, in tribal lands. The heart of the temple, the most important parts, the ark and its cover were in Binyamin, the tribe of Benjamin. Why was this so? It was because Binyamin was born on the road, right? Remember Rachel dies, his mother dies on the road. Um, you could go to Rachel's tomb on the way to Ephrat. This comes with a great advantage. When you're on the road, you can't be fixed in place, bound by your ideology. You're required to respond, to renew yourself, to flow. People used to say, on the road, don't be right, be smart. If a car is driving toward you, it doesn't help you to yell. Why are you driving the wrong way in my lane? <laughs> right? <laughs> and so um, he talks about this idea is through the road. Um, also, it's worth noting that um, that the Zohar, right, the great mystical work of Kabbalah, is essentially rabbis walking together, talking while they walk. They're philosophizing as they. It's all a street conversation. The Zohar. So, friends, to conclude here, indeed, let let us sit and read, let us sit and meditate, let us sit and break bread, but let us also get up and think while we walk together, sitting is a spiritual practice, but so is walking. All right, friends, I would love to pause there and open up our conversation together about all this stuff, civil disobedience, 
isolation, um, pacifism versus hawkism, walking versus sitting, wherever you want to go. Cheryl, let's start with you. Oh, well, I didn't mean to unmute, but oh, I, I was just okay. going to comment that that's okay. I, I, I didn't vote. I didn't vote in the poll um, because I, I, I there just wasn't a choice for me right. to vote. So uh, normally I don't abstain. So but if you were to fill in the blank, what would you have put? I would have put that, I mean, because talking about, I don't mind talking with someone who disagrees with me, but sometimes I don't feel like I know enough to carry on, you know, to, to pro I can say what I believe, but I can't really necessarily articulate um, why I feel a certain way. So that, that, that was, that's why anyway. <laughs> But I love that you engaged in an act of resistance against the, right. against the options provided to you. So that's 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 wonderful <laughs> by not voting at all. Um, awesome, great, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Hugs and Uh Well, I really don't have a lot to 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 add at this point. Uh, but I did want to say that you know in high school we had to read Walden, and uh, and I had pictured Walden Pond in my mind for years and years and years. And when our son went to college in Boston, I said, I have to go out and see Walden Pond. And after seeing Walden Pond, it kind of kind of ruined, I should have never gone because to me, it is this is dumpy little, <laughs> dumpy little place out in the, out in the burbs. And, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of like a national, a national place. But uh, so I have a hard time when, when I think about reading Walden and going out there, I'm sure it didn't look that way back right. in 1800s or whatever it was but uh that was you know you get something in your mind and uh and right maybe, maybe sometimes those dreams should just be left alone <laughs> oh my gosh all the time all the time right that's so funny you know and people have the same experience with the grand canyon some people go to the grand canyon and they're like oh my gosh i found god at the grand canyon it's like just one of the miracles other people are like i drove six hours to like see this like hole like, you know, and same with the Western Wall, the Kotel. Some people cry at the Western Wall and they feel God's presence. And others are like, what's the big deal? It's like a wall, you know, all this buildup against it. So all these expectations of like going to this special place, right? Um, so, yeah, thanks for that, Gary. So maybe I won't go to Walden's Pond one day after all. Um, <laughs> I want to also invite our, our friend Garrick here, if I recall. Garrick, I don't want to put words in your mouth. If if you want to jump in at any point, I believe you're a high school student. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Okay, no pressure to jump in, but um, uh, if you ever want to, you're 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 invited. Welcome to join. Thanks for joining us today. All right, thank you. Well, let me add in here Great. since everyone's quiet. You know, the the thought of Shabbat uh, to me is well, I should say I was more observant of Shabbat in younger years than I am uh, today. And, have, and having lived in, in the central Phoenix area way back when, when I belonged to Bethel, it was really very nice to know that uh, shutting off the world for a day uh, was is equal to a walk sometimes. Uh, you know, could, could, could walk to shul and see friends and see community uh, and uh, made the day go quick and nice and uh, mm -hmm. really enjoyed it. Uh, and, and one of my, my biggest gripes about conservative Judaism uh, not, uh, uh, is that when they decided that you could drive to shul rather than uh, live close where you had to walk, uh, because I think it, it, it had a tendency to break up community. Uh, uh, and there is something about getting in a car uh, 
and breaking the mood, even if you listen to Jewish music or or whatever, uh, then then go home away from your community. And I found it interesting this week that the Shuva came out from uh, some of the Orthodox, uh, excuse me, conservative rabbis that it's okay to use an EV on Shabbat. Uh, and I thought that was pretty funny in, in, in light that Yore could drive on Shabbat according to the conservative uh, movement rabbis. Uh, and I thought that, again, they, they kind of missed the, they, they missed the point of why you should or shouldn't drive uh, because it broke it broke up community. And, and that kind of, it's tough to, to do Shabbat by yourself. Right. Right. You know. Yeah, Gary, thank you for that. Um, because, yeah, we were presenting Shabbat in Heschel's view as a little bit from a break of the world. But for other people, Shabbat's exciting because it's a communal time. Maybe you have dinner guests. Maybe you join Shul for five hours on a Saturday morning, whatever the case is, or, you know, um, and, um, and and in some ways it can be challenging uh, for people who want the quiet because of how communal it is and other people, the opposite. And you're right about, about the driving, you know, it's um, on the one hand, um, you know, the conservative movement has um, prided itself on kind of being a middle space of kind of adapting to tradition and, and modernity. Um, and that was a great example where people wanted to move further out and people were driving anyways. And on the other hand, right, it was a breakdown of community where people moved far away enough that they weren't going to come as often. They weren't going to have meals together, this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's a great, it's a great example of the sociological impacts that come, that come along with those kind of decision-making, you know, issues. Okay, thank you so much. So much more to say there, but over to you, Aglaia. Okay, so the short version of the story was, is that, um, like I said, if you had pulled me 30 years ago, I had this like romanticized idea of getting arrested for fighting the man and standing up to the man and everything else like that. So you would have actually had that answer. But then I also had these romanticized ideas about like, hey, I'm going to go run off like Thoreau and like live by Walden Pond and like tell everybody else to go, go away, just leave me alone and everything. But I've had to like learn a few lessons about that since then. Sorry, my voice is gravelly today because I caught a cold at a conference this weekend. But I was just um, like, read this, like I had to write a reaction statement to Heschel on the Sabbath. And basically, though, my mentor rabbi liked this. You guys can decide one way or another if you did. But basically, I was like, um, okay, that's what it was. Okay, for me, time became a liberator. If I apply this moment to a religious practice and observing holy time every week could feel like regular appointments with freedom, even in a jail cell. And there's nothing my captors can do about it. And then I said, I definitely can um, see that understanding that God's intent and in making um, Sabbath holy before anything else could be a light when darkness is all around you. Now, I don't know why she completely like, you know, like really like focused in on that and everything though, but um, the way that I kind of see it, though, is that, um, you know, in its own, like you were saying, in its own way, Shabbat is, you know, in its own way, kind of like civil disobedience, because you're withdrawing from the world and, you know, and it's really hard for people to actually do it. However, though, um, I don't know, I just kind of look at it from this, um, looking at everything from this perspective. On the one hand, I have these Thoreau tendencies to like make everybody else go away, go away, just leave me alone. I don't want to look at you and everything. And I'm I still kind of want to stand up to the man, but then I chose 
I like to listen to people and go out and volunteer also, because I've learned that talking to people doesn't actually do any good either. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I kind of want to look at it from the perspective of um, just look at it from the, well, what can you do? Because a lot of the time talking is not going to do any good. And, you know, the only thing... Okay, the only thing I could do at one point in time was just basically stop answering emails, my students' whiny emails on Shabbat, because it was like, okay, I need one day, just one day when I don't have to deal with this, deal with all of these silly, like, excuses and everything like that. <laughs> so I don't know, like, I mean, all of it usually comes down to, like, well, what exactly can we do? Now, in Thoreau's, well, his aunt went, I think it was his aunt went and paid his poll tax for him to get him out of jail. That's what I think I remember. It was a relative who paid it because they were so embarrassed that he was sitting there for a night in jail and everything. But, you know, and everything. <laughs> okay. Else. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I thank you. I, I didn't realize it was the aunt. That's interesting. Um, and yeah, I appreciate that. I really appreciate that that point as well um, about, about that Shabbat perspective. Um, so thank you for that. And yeah, and Shabbat as a practice of, yeah, subversive practice in a sense of pushing a bit gap back against the, the, the societal trends. I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, in the least in regards to how we use, how we use the world, um, you know, the world is instrumental for our gain and to kind of break from that and to break from being used as well. So that's, that's really powerful. Just to read Steve's comment before we move on here. Um, cause since his mic isn't working, uh, that the first thing his grandmother noticed when she moved to the, came to the United States in 1922 was how much and, and how frequently people smiled. It's so, that's so interesting. And, um, and it's also just so interesting. I mean, part of that is technology, you know, the birth of film, the birth of cameras, um, uh, but also it's cultural. I mean, we know that smiling and laughter is very cultural, how and when to smile and, um, and, and you know, and uh, and and part of it is kind of gender expectations too, and in society, racial expectations um, around how people are to portray themselves. So there, there's really a lot there. So, anyways, thank you for that. Um, and I'm sure we all have pictures like that, like that of our grandparents that are like in their family picture. Like my family picture, like everyone's on each other's heads. They're like, ah. And I look back at the ones from 100 years ago. They're like. You know, just like, like nobody was like saying keys or, you know. Um, okay. Hi, Vicki Cabot. Over to you. I'm here. I'm unmuted. Okay. I think I'm on the screen. Um, I think I found what a lot of what you had to say about Thoreau and what I also know about Thoreau really interesting and also the conversation. I think that for almost all of us, it isn't an all or nothing. Take action or sit back and meditate and think. I think we need to do both. Um, I'd say for some of us, I would say for myself, I think the meditative part of it should come first and think through before I take action as to, is it going to be effective and is it really something that I think that I should do? Is it appropriate mm -hmm. for me as a person to go out and march or to whatever, to sit in the middle of the street and a protest it, whatever, those kinds of things. But I think also to Gary's point about walking, I think, and Thoreau's point about walking, walking does induce thinking. I think anybody who is trying to gather their thoughts and whether it's to write something, whether it's to say something, whether it's just to figure out what my next step is, if I walk by myself, not plugged in, maybe with the dog, 
but I'm looking at the sky, I'm looking out at nature, I'm looking out at the mountains, and I feel like it frees up my mind and creates that space, maybe that Heschel's talking about, of time and space where I can come to some understanding, maybe not solve anything, and then an understanding of what I think I should do and how I should or should not respond. Mm, mm, very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Um, love that. So I love that 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 thought about walking. Um, any of us who have ever recovered from a surgery, a major surgery, you know that getting up to walk from the bed can be very painful, um, but it can also be very liberating. Um, that that th those walks that are encouraged, um, or those of us who were ever shut in, like if you had COVID and you didn't leave home and you finally went out. You know, I mean, this is, uh, I remember after major surgery, I the, just the feel of the sunlight and walking out to the car. I just remember crying at, at, you know, that space, people who have been, you know, kind of shut in. And so, um, and it's a great mitzvah to find people who can't walk by themselves and help to enable them to, to, to get a walk in um, or even a, a push in, in the wheelchair, you know, however we can enable people to get sunlight and get movement in any way possible. So it's great for us. It's great for others. And thanks for the other point, Vicky, around introspection. I totally agree with you. The need to meditate and think before acting um, is this. And 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 you know, in regards to causes, is this effective to act? Am I the right person to act? All these questions we can ask ourselves before engaging. So thank you so much. Okay, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Good afternoon. So um, I really was appreciating what Vicky was saying, not only about reflecting, but about walking, because we know also that walking is one of the ways that some people actually learn best, that in movement, the neural networks are set up so that we can take in information. And I think one of the cruelest things we do to children is make them sit in their seats. Oh my gosh. Um, it's a really bad way of learning, but um, I like that notion of learning through movement. We not only learn about our bodies, but our brains work better. And the other thing that, that she said about reflecting first um, takes me to our Musar teachings about really being silent do I need to say this? Do I need to take this action? What, what consequences? Is it for my good or for the good of humanity? All of those things are important things for us to consider before we step out and throw <laughs> as Aglaia. I mean, I Aglaia, I'm older than you, and in the 60s, I was out there protesting whether I really knew what the hell I was doing or not, or considered consequences or the bigger pictures. Um, it was it was a part of adolescence and late adolescence. So um, I appreciate what you're saying. I still find myself doing that, but we won't go. <laughs> so I'm I'm more than complete. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. On the one hand, the Talmud says, silence is like acquiescence, that to remain silent is to be complicit. You can't just be like, I'm not going to engage in this issue because silence is also an action. On the other hand, as Sarah's saying so powerfully um, from Musar, that 
we learn that silence is the greatest wisdom, the greatest wisdom in being able to to just um, sit in silence and not, you know, be able to learn and not just jump to speak, jump to act. So thank you for that. And I mean, obviously, like everything, the wisdom is not being on one side or the other, but knowing when to do when, what, when do I need to be silent and when do I do I not need to be? Um, and of course, raising raising kids perhaps might be one of the hardest, you know, experiments. And when do I speak up against, uh, you know, th their path? And when do I just keep my mouth shut? Speaking of kids, what is up with these teens these days? What's the matter with these kids these days? These teens, they walk, forget walking. They walk down the street watching their social media. I just want to feel, I just want to feel old for a moment. Like critique the teens and social media, you know? <laughs> so no, but no, but seriously, um, it's like, it's like unbelievable. If you walk people walk, walking down the street, they're like, got their phone in front of their face. They're walking down the road. So, um, okay. So Vicky, is that a new hand or an old hand that's up? Eddie, I, I, I think Eddie just uh, put a screen on. So I think that usually means he's going to jump in. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really wrestling with the idea of 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 finding val balance because I think there is a, a, such a a profound wisdom and knowing when to to be quiet because it's okay not to have an opinion on something, and I think that that's what causes a lot of conflict is that we uh, live in a society where we feel like obligated to have an opinion on every single thing, uh, especially when you're not uh, especially a person who has a great of knowledge and things like science or the economy or something like that, that it isn't a place for you to, to have a certain opinion. But I also wholeheartedly um, agree with uh, MLK when he says that there comes a time when silence is betrayal. And I think that it is a, a direct attack on communities who are being oppressed when people choose to be silent. And I think that the the action of choosing to be silent with you're 100% right is without a doubt an action of uh, pointing um, where you where you stand. So I think that it's in, an, an interesting balance that I've, I think as we grow and we learn so much wisdom from, we start to um, try to find that balance. Uh, so I, I really appreciated that comment. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's like, and sometimes this is hardest when it's closest to home. Uh, I appreciate that, Eddie, because in families, we might hear a racist comment. In our community, we might hear a xenophobic sentiment. You know, people, a friend, we might, new biases emerge. And the question is, huh, do I want to like shake up community? Do I want to like lose a friend? Do I want to like ruin this meal? you know, by bringing something up. And of course there's ways to do things sensitively, but like, when do we say like, it's actually just not right. What's being said here, what's being done. And when do I say like, peace is going to override, you know, saying or doing what's right. So yeah, this is, these are really hard questions. I'm sure we all grapple with. I think people were really grappling with them in 2016 to 2020, you know, in the country, but it's still, still today. And, you know, when to speak, how to speak and, um, you know, and of course, there's many, 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 many good ways to do, to, you know, to do, to do good in the world, aside from just, quote unquote, speaking out. Um, and so we can all find our own pathways that work for us. We have different personalities, different theories of change. Um, so thank you for that. All right. We still got another another 12 minutes here. So I want to give a floor to Gary Gartsman, to Ed Awata, to um, Garrick, Jeff Zimmerman. Oh, good. Ed, hi. I uh, just wanted to... Um, I guess support Eddie's comment. 
um, because all through these philosophers, I get the sense that you're posing a what non-duality. You either speak of truth or you speak of false, and there's no balance in between, or there's no other thought. So the thought occurred to me as you were going through the session about you know civil disobedience and, and that. Um, the January 6th incident had obviously the radical um, and the violence involved, but I'd also heard stories of the people that sincerely thought about how they could voice their opinion in a nonviolent way and believed that this was the way to do it. So in essence, you were justifying in a, in a sense, or, or Thoreau might have been justifying that yes, they should take action. Now, they never thought that it would end up with uh, violence um, and were appalled by that, but they honestly participated with the thought that, yeah, this is what I would call nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, so you, you end up kind of justifying then that we've got to put a lot more thought about who's going to participate in these yes, events. Exactly. Right. In addition to the fact that, oh yeah, I've thought about this. I've taken my walks and everything else. Um, and I find that is sort of that non-duality uh, issue. Uh, there's all kinds of what factors uh, becoming involved as you move along with, particularly with social media and everybody knows what's going on or they're able to influence people through social media. Right. Um, so uh, I, I guess I'm with this whole balance deal. It's got to be significant enough to you and to what you perceive to be um, society or the community right. or your family. Um so when I start with something like that, it's like, okay, well, what do I feel about it personally? And that's where I sort of say, okay, where is my truth? And then do I want to go as far out to say to friends, family, and community, you know, this should be your truth. Mm -hmm. Or should I just say it at my truth right. and help the people that might be adversely affected by it. And then there's that third level that I have always said that the truth is beyond me to understand or beyond even human comprehension. So, but that doesn't stop groups of people saying and professing that, oh no, I know the answer. Mm -hmm. And it's not gonna stop me from saying at my level, no, I think this is the answer, but I could be influenced as I, gain some experience and wisdom and so forth. Um, so I, I sort of separate it by that. Uh, there's sort of my truth, then there's a truth that religions, political groups have gotten, and that at that level, as they start to profess this as the truth, that's when we get to the wars. Mm, very nice. Yeah. So I'm a little hesitant about yeah, <laughs> totally. my truth 
yeah. even onto this platform. Mm -hmm. Ed, Ed, um, remind me how many years you spent working in the police force? That was 10 years. 10 years. And did, did you ever arrest somebody engaged in civil disobedience? Uh, I wasn't actually out in the street. Oh, you weren't. I was okay. Behind a desk. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, in essence, working through some of the statistics as to um, the crimes that were involved. Uh, okay. Because one of the ethical or moral issues that came about was uh, where I lived at the time. It was the number one major crime city and state for sexual assaults, uh, but most of them involved Native Americans. Uh, and most of those involved drinking. Mm -hmm. And most of them involved acquaintances at a party. So now what was my sort of obligation um, as far as making this a, an, an issue for the community? Um, that would sort of be taken aback by visitors uh, and maybe not coming to the area. Yeah. But also the Native American groups were very upset that I would characterize them as mm -hmm. drunkards. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want it publicized either. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting, Ed. Thank you. I, I, I would love to dig into that more. Uh, with you, because we're doing a bunch of work now with Native communities. Um, in any case, just circling back to your point around association, I really appreciate that. I mean, when when, when we've been involved in protest work, one of my questions has always been, "Well, who who's involved?" Um, because it, it is it is it, it it is often that extremists will get involved in a certain movement, and then you're associated with that. You think you're engaged in peaceful civil disobedience, and then someone does something violent or breaking stuff or or the like, and uh, you don't want to be associated with that. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. Okay, so much more to say there, but let's go to Gary Gartsman. Thank you, Ed. Yeah, I was I, I, I was fascinated with the comparison of Shabbat as a kind of mini uh, solitude break uh, compared to Walden Palm. And I guess I was thinking if I was designing, trying to design a system that would promote solitude, reflection, taking a break, uh, relatively good things in my mind. I like the idea of maybe just you know one day a week rather, because I think that's doable. Not all of us can take three years right. and you know, go, yeah. go live at you know, Gary's ugly Walden Pond, which I've been to <laughs> when I went to, <laughs> back to school in Boston and went out there, it's like, oh, seriously? <laughs> yeah so you know let let that sit and i guess the other is talking thinking about what aglaia said uh referencing the poll question about talking to, to people because i i uh, was so stunned by what happened in the election of 2016 that i realized i had was living in a different world than approximately half of my fellow countrymen that i tried to uh, engage with people uh, about their ideas and not to convince, because I think that's that's a bad idea, uh, a, a good theoretical idea, but a bad practical idea in my, in my experience. But uh, I think I learned a lot about my philosophy and my ideas by internally having to combat these arguments 
uh, from the other side. Uh, so that's why I, I kind of answered whichever uh, one that was. That even though I, I don't think I'm going to change anyone's opinion, uh, I think I learned a lot about how I thought about things by having someone explain to me about lasers and Bill Gates and seeding the clouds with internet viruses and stuff like that. And it's, it's a wonderful discipline to be able to like not walk out of the room or start laughing or crying or hitting someone when you hear what in your mind are absolutely crazy things from what appear to be normal looking people. So those are, those are my two thoughts. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Yes. Um, an ongoing challenge we have of how to engage in dialogue, how to bridge divides, how to cultivate understanding, um, you know, in these times that we have have today that that seem to just not be going away anytime soon. Um, so thank you. Thank you for both of those points. Um, so friends, um, I have to caution you before you join us next session, because you might be labeled if you join our next session. If you saw the movie Oppenheimer, or if you lived in an era where communists were sought out you might be labeled if you join our next session on Marx as a commie or as a Marxist. Um, so you have to be careful to be associated with uh, such ideas. But we will be looking at Marx next session. <laughs> and some of the good of Marx, some of the good of Marx. So, you know, you might be you might be associated. You might, you know, be in trouble at your work or, um, uh, you know, in your relationships. If you're labeled a commie. It's easy to forget what that was like. I mean, you know you know, that if you were in any way, you know, linked to communist ideas, like what that, what that meant for you, you know, um, if you go back to Oppenheimer film, again, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, so in any case, um, we're going to dive into Marx and some of his economic theories, a little bit of his background and wow, you know, earth shattering ideas that influence the world of philosophy, political thought, economic reform uh, next time. But Thoreau was a nice little stopover because um, it's over here in America. And um, he's tapping into issues that resonate for, for us as humans, isolation versus needs of community, um, how to engage with unjust government, you know, how to incorporate a spirituality into this worldview. And, um, you know, he was a very unique personality that we haven't learned enough about. We, have, of course, only scratched the surface today, but um, I'm sure he will come up for us again. So with that, wishing everyone a Chag Sameach a beautiful uh, Sukkot holiday and looking forward to seeing you again soon. Have a, have a wonderful day.